Scott, what made you want to be a writer? Oh, gosh. Um, I grew up an Air Force brat. My father was a colonel in the Air Force, so we moved around like every two, three years. And that meant there was a lot of time left uh, for just being by yourself because, you know, you have to, it takes a while to make friends and whatnot. And living in unusual places like Alabama and Minot, North Dakota, uh, lent itself to a lot of time for reading. And I just started writing. I, I was writing short stories very early on. When I went to college, I took some creative writing classes, but I kind of let that slide. I was more interested in songwriting. I did that for many, many years. And so that was my main focus. Did you kind of write your own story for when you had to go to a new school? Like almost your own bio, sort of like, hi, I'm Scott, I'm the new kid in class. Well, the interesting thing, and this has actually paid off as a writer, is that I discovered early on the quickest and best way to make friends is to ask questions and just listen to them. And they think you're the best friend in the world because you're there to hear them and they get into a habit of knowing that you will, whether conscious or not, they know that you will listen to them. And so the relationships, that's problematic because on the one hand, I'm not really revealing much of myself, but I am learning a lot about other people. And so I kind of got, I tell people I got a, an unofficial BA in psychology just by being an Air Force brat and moving around and paying attention to all these people and figuring out the dynamics of groups as I would come in and find out where I could fit in. And as you know, as, as a writer, you spend so much time with your characters and doing the same sort of work where you're asking questions to them and about them and thinking about their interrelationships. So, um, in terms of my own biography, it was pretty simple. I was an Air Force brat and, and we lived on Air Force bases. And so people sort of knew what that meant. How did your family embrace the idea that you wanted to write? I realized that wasn't your original plan. Yeah. Um, I think they were, they were always encouraging me to their regret. They bought me a guitar when I was 14 <laughs> because I went off to college and graduate school and I was going to become an academic but I was playing music. And my last year at Yale, my graduate program, the three-year master's that I was gonna do before I went in and got a doctorate, I just felt like, it felt like I shouldn't be there. It really did feel like I was not aligned with what I should be doing. And I had this horrible image uh, of myself down the road as a successful teacher, you know, professor at a university in my study, beautiful books, desk, the single banker's lamp late at night and my guitar case in the corner collecting dust. That was literally an image I had. And so I knew that if I didn't pursue that creative avenue that I'd be disappointed. And so I took a year off and that became the rest of my life. So as soon as I started writing songs when I was 14, I knew that there was something about writing and creativity that was an essential part of who I was and I had to pursue that in some respect. Do you still write spec screenplays today? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I did break in in 1987, writing a spec script called Canine. It uh, sold to Universal and then became a movie starring James Belushi. It was released in 1989, and then there were two sequels. And off that, I had a 15-year period where I lived in Los Angeles and wrote 30 plot projects for every major studio and every uh, broadcast network except for ABC, which is why I joke is why I don't watch ABC now, you know. But um, nowadays I teach at the DePaul University School of Cinematic Arts in Chicago full time. I've evolved into that. And so 
I don't write as much in terms of screenplays right now. I do have one project I'm working on with a producer because I'm an academic now. I mean, I've finally fully entered into this academic world. So I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book on screenwriting, and that's my major area of focus. But I do have a novel that I want to write, and I have another screenplay that I have waiting, you know, when I have a chance to write it. Do you think there's an energy to where you write? Like when you were in Los Angeles for 15 or so years, and then going to Illinois, and then I don't know if you've written in Virginia or wherever, is there there a difference where you write, like what you produce? Um, When I was here, I had a, uh, a little formula that I would use. It was one to five or five to seven, which meant that I wrote from one to five in the afternoon and when I was pounding out a first draft, it would be five to seven pages. So if I hit five pages by say 3.30, I'd say, okay, I'm done. Because I found that that's basically as much as I could do, apart from say like going away for a weekend and just jamming out 60 pages, which I've done too. And it didn't really matter where I would write, it just had to be quiet. I'm not one of those people that can go to coffee shops. Uh, I'd like to have, even I'll put white noise on sometimes to avoid you know outside, interruptions. But now I do most of my creative writing late at night, like one o'clock in the morning, because that's when everything stops, you know, in terms of emails and whatnot. But I do think it's critically important that for a writer to have a space and a time, preferably a daily routine. I just think that, you know, I've interviewed probably 200 writers on my blog go into the story. And that's one consistent thing you hear, is writing every day. So um, while I'm not writing spec scripts actively right now, I still do write. And I am writing this book, so I write, you know, I write the book during the day and then I'll rewrite it at night. Do you think your discipline comes from having been around the air, you know, you you were around sort of this very regimented uh, sort of environment? That's, That's a big part of it. You know, growing up a military uh, in a military family, there was a very strong routine, and my father had high expectations for us, and um, that has both good sides and negative sides to it. Also, I grew up with a very strong Protestant work ethic. You know, I like to work, I really do. And but then the third thing is the creative—it's the passion. I mean, I love story. I love movies. One thing being a military brat, when you move around as much as I did, one of the constants was movie theaters. The weather could change from Alabama to California to Ohio to North Dakota. The, The general sort of topography and what you could do outside and when you could do it depending upon the weather, that could vary. But every Air Force base had a movie theater. And it was subsidized by the federal government. So like when I was a child, I was literally going to see movies for 50 cents, 75 cents. And I would go in the summer like every day and watch movies. And so I developed an enormous passion for movies. I, I, I love movies. I don't think there's any greater form of entertainment and storytelling than movies. And so, yeah, there is a certain amount of routine and there's a certain amount of just liking to get work done and setting goals and meeting those goals. But the most important thing is that passion, just to really lean into that and embrace it and 
So that's why it's so important to pick projects that you're passionate about. Has anyone ever challenged you on that and said, you know what, Scott, you can take a week off and try to say like, don't work so hard, but you feel like that's going to throw you off your rhythm? No, I, I, I have, a, you know, I, because of my blog, I've been doing it now for almost 11 years. I, I tend to interface with, and teaching, I tend to interface with people and come up with these little sayings, you know, and one of them is there's no one right way to write. Every writer is different. Every story is different. And so anybody who says this is the way to write, you know, I would push back on that. And so, for example, one of the questions I'll sometimes ask writers when I interview them is, what's your best excuse not to write, right? It's very funny to hear them, you know, well, ESPN or the, the, <laughs> the great baking show or whatever that thing is in, you know, from England or whatnot. But I remember interviewing a writer who said to me, I don't need an excuse. If I want to take a day off, I take a day off because I know I'm going to get the project done on time. And so um, there have been times when I, when I do that. Yeah, I can take some time off, you know. But again, I'm confident I'm going to get it done because I've done so many, you know, scripts in the, uh, and gotten them, you know, from faded to fade out. Do you believe you will sell another one of your screenplays? That's not even really, you know, much of a consideration for me now. I'm, you know, I'm, uh, uh, I'm of an age where, uh, well, first of all, the industry has changed so much. It's really hard to sell material nowadays, particularly original material. Uh, in fact, there are some who refer to original content now as being untested. That's how addicted Hollywood is to pre-existing content, to, you know, to IP, intellectual property. So prequels and sequels and remakes and reboots and sequels, which is a sequel with women, you know, females doing the roles of like Ocean's Eight and Ghostbusters, right? So the numbers I track on my blog, I've tracked ever since 1989, really, I've broken at 87, but since 18, 90, 1989, I've tracked spec script deal, deals because I was, you know, wanting to see what the market was doing. And there was a big rise in them in the 90s. That was kind of the golden age of the spec script. And then it's fluctuated, uh, you know, but now the last few years, it's been pretty depressed in terms of the market. So, uh, and, and I teach now, that's my full-time job. You know, I write as, I'd say it's a bit more than a hobby. It's, you know, it's, it's kind of an avocation, you know? I mean, like spec scripts and stuff. So that doesn't concern me, you know. Um, what concerns me is, is my teaching. And I have to say, I never expected it. I always just did it as a, as a side thing. But now that I'm doing it full time, I really feel like this is my purpose right now, is to be a teacher. I just, I'll have, here's a story for you. So I was just at the Willamette Writers Conference in Portland, Oregon. And I got there my first night, Thursday night. And I'm having dinner and some people came up because they recognized the you know, long-haired dude who's got the blog, right? <laughs> oh, I like your blog and so forth. This young guy comes up and I look at him and I'm like, he looks familiar to me. And he said, um, hi, my name's Sam. Uh, you may not remember me, but you, you, I took two of your classes at the University of North Carolina. That's when I was living in Chapel Hill and I taught adjunct. And he said, that really changed my life because I had never anticipated that I would get so connected to that stuff. And he has, since graduation, been a literary agent. He never would have thought of that. He's now with the agency that represents Stephen King and George R.R. R. Martin. Oh, wow. And so, and he said, I talk to my clients about story, and they go, wow, you really know this stuff. And he said, that's all 
my professor from UNC. So that's the kind of thing, when you hear that sort of thing, it just is incredibly reaffirming and inspirational. I mean, to be able to influence people and to encourage them to follow their bliss, you know, pursue that they're passionate about, and they do it, and then, you know, some have some success, some success like that, that's just a great thing. Well, even your your blog um, is gointostory.blacklist? Go into the story, yeah. It's gointostory.blcklst.com, okay. yeah, the blacklist. It's the official screenwriting blog of the blacklist, yeah. Very nice. Well, it's it's a teaching blog in that, yes. too, you have all these wonderful questions. You say, like, commonly asked. Yeah. I mean, there must be, like, 100 questions there. Which oh, I more thought, than that, yeah. Okay. There's um, <clears throat> 26,000 <laughs> articles on the blog. I know it's insane. I blogged every day for nearly 4,100 straight days. I mean, that's just my. The subtext of that is that I'm gonna I'm gonna track the business no matter what. So why not? And I'm gonna reflect about writing, you know, every day no matter what. So why not just take like 45 minutes to an hour and do my blogging? And um, the subtext is if I can do that every day, you can write every day. You know, I don't, I don't make it a big deal, but I'm hoping that people will go, oh, okay, yeah, I can write an hour a day. You know, if you write one page a day, this was something that uh, Larry Gordon, who produced Canine, told me. He said, if you write a page a day, you can write two spec scripts in a year. If you spend a month prepping the story, four months, page a day, that's 120 pages, and a month rewriting, that's six months, that's a spec script. And you do that twice, twice in a year, you get two spec scripts. <coughs> Excuse me. It was just, do, do, you, do you anticipate writing another spec script in, oh. in the meantime? But I know you're writing a book. Yeah. And, and very busy, so. Yeah, the book is, is something that um, I'm excited to do. I've had many, many people approach me about doing that before, and I didn't really feel it was appropriate at the time, given what I was doing. But this was a Palgrave Macmillan, which is a very well-known academic press out of London. And what they're excited about and what I'm excited about is the particular angle on the material, which is character-driven screenwriting. So it's called The Protagonist's Journey, Character-Driven Screenwriting and Storytelling. And um, what's really unique about it is that it takes the work of Carl Jung, who's founded Analytical Psychology, and who was hugely influenced on Jan Joseph Campbell, and I discovered Joseph Campbell when I was in college, and brings his ideas to screenwriting. I think of all the screenwriting gurus and all the how-to books, that Carl Jung is the greatest screenwriting guru there is. His theory of individuation is the protagonist's journey, and we can apply those ideas to get writers to focus on their characters, really drill down and lean into their protagonist. You know, what is their state of disunity? Why are they disconnected from their authentic nature? Because that is, in effect, what the protagonist does in 90% of movies. They go from a state of inauthentic life, what I call disunity, to more of a state of authenticity. And that's what the individuation process is in a nutshell. And so I'm very excited about bringing that content into a book form. And sorry, did Carl Jung come up with the archetypes? He, it, the, the word archetypes has been around, but yes, he was very, in, uh, very much uh, about that. And he believes in the collective unconscious. So there are archetypes that exist out there that we dip into. It's why, say for example, 
stories that lean into these narrative archetypes or even character archetypes, that there's like a second level of connection. There's the story itself and the entertainment, but there's this unconscious thing that'd be going on where they're tapping into that, those archetypes. And so, for example, I um, have discovered that in, in uh, watching movie after movie after movie and reading screenplays and studying this, that there are basically five primary character archetypes that we see over and over again. There's the protagonist, that forward-moving energy has a goal. There's an oppositional dynamic. You know, most people call it antagonist. I call it a nemesis. So you've got the protagonist versus the nemesis. Along the way, the protagonist meets people who are ostensibly allies. Sometimes they're not, but there's a character type that deals with the protagonist's emotional development, and I call that character type an attractor character, sometimes a romance character, but not always. Then there's a character type that influences the protagonist in terms of their intellectual development, and that's the mentor, which we've all heard about, right? And then there's a fifth archetype, which is a very, very long-standing tradition in indigenous cultures throughout the world, and that's the trickster. The trickster is a shapeshifter. It's an ally, enemy, enemy, ally. And so they test the will of the protagonist, essentially creating challenges and obstacles and problems that they have to overcome, it's like pop quizzes leading to the final struggle at the end. And so we see these five archetypes that exist in, I could walk you through dozens of movies right now if, 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 if I had the time, where we just see that and I thought, well, that's fascinating. And actually, Jung has not something like that, but he's got a construct uh, that is similar to this character map that I've put together um, that will be in the book. So, and you know, I'm just curious. I, you you piqued my curiosity with this. Let's say it's Forrest Gump. Would would Lieutenant Dan be the trickster? Sort of this Le chameleon who's testing him. Well, the interesting thing about Forrest Gump is that Forrest is 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 one of those is one of those stories where the protagonist doesn't change. He's a change agent. He changes other people. Oh. And so I guess you could say that, yeah, uh, Lieutenant Dan is a trickster in the sense that at first he's very anti-Forrest. He does not want, he did not want to be saved. He wanted to die because he had the legacy of his whole family tradition of, of men and military who died in the field of battle. And so he's, he's pissed off at Forrest and he's angry. And he, he's, he tries to, uh, you know, of course he's wheelchair bound uh, because he's lost his legs, you know. Um, and we see him drinking and whoring and just basically doing everything he can to, to forget about his life. But Forrest keeps coming back in his earnestness and his affection for Lieutenant Dan, so that by the time he, they join together and do the shrimp boat thing, right? There's a moment where Lieutenant Dan's out in the water swimming and Forrest says he thinks that he finally came to peace. And of course there's that beautiful ending where he does attend Forrest's wedding with Jenny, and he's got those titanium legs, and he's married a woman from Southeast Asia. So he has an arc, right? Jenny has an arc, right? He's, I would say that she's an attractor character, obviously. He, that's the character that he's the most emotionally connected to, you know? So, um, but a more, you know, an easier example to, to talk about this in terms of like a character who goes through a change would be, so take a movie like The Wizard of Oz. The protagonist is clearly Dorothy. And we think of that lovely song she sings, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, right? But she talks about troubles and clouds, right? She wants to go someplace else. She doesn't feel like her home really is a home. She's an orphan. She's the only young person there. 
She's dressed in these crisp little dress. Everybody else has got work clothes. She doesn't even have a job. She gets in the way of the people in terms of their jobs. And so it takes her to, to have to take this trip to Oz, classic hero's journey construction, right? Where she has to go leave the ordinary world, go to the extraordinary world. And through those experiences there, learn when she comes back that there's no place like home. But the characters she intersects with are pivotal in that experience. So for example, the nemesis character, Miss Gulch, and she says, you wicked old witch, well, she becomes the wicked witch of the West, right? Providing opposition, she wants those ruby red slippers. And she's uh, you know, a threat to Dorothy. But then there's a mentor character, and that's Glinda the Good Witch. You know, those shoes must be, go see the, yeah, follow the Olympic Road. That's providing insight. That's what mentor character. She wakes them up when they've fallen asleep. Remember the poppies? She wakes them up with the snowfall. So she's an, uh, and she provides this, the biggest piece of insight at the very end of the movie, so, where she says, Dorothy, you've had the power all along. You just had to realize it. And so that's a mentor figure. <clears throat> the trickster character is clearly Professor Marvel, the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> You know, who shapeshifts. There's actually that actor, Frank Morgan, plays five different roles in the movie, which is oh. like a, a perfect example of a, of a trickster shapeshifting. Um, and then the attractor character, Scarecrow, Tin Man, and Cowardly Lion, who become her best friends. And because they are related to Hunk, Hickory, and Zeke back in, on the earth, that, back in you know, Kansas, that is a bridge for her to feel a connection now to Kansas. So when she comes back home, She's got Annie M and Uncle Henry and those three. So we see those five, you know, uh, those five archetypes. But I could go through Casablanca and Silence of the Lambs and just movie after movie where this is the case. How does someone who wants to become a professional screenwriter approach it like a, a professional screenwriter? What is their mindset? What is their time like? What are they doing that's different from someone who just says, I want to be a writer and both have equal talent? but one's approach and mindset is different from the other one that, eh, yeah, I want to be a writer, but doesn't do that much. That's a really good question. I had uh, one of my students from online um, is now a very, very successful TV showrunner and soon to be directing a, a, a movie that she wrote. Um, and I had her, it's Lisa Joy, she is co-executive producer of Westworld. And she came to a class that I taught at, at Westwood for a weekend seminar, and that question, they posed that question to her. And she said, well, I was working as a lawyer, and, and before that I was going to law school. And the way I approached it was, I'm going to act like I am a professional screenwriter. I'm gonna approach this like a job. And so obviously, you know, how do you do that in terms of hours? But set that aside, that's the mentality to have. And you have to really immerse yourself in it. And it's not just about writing the script, it's about learning the craft. And so one of those things that I came up with years ago from my blog, which is watch movies, read script, write pages. Those three things are absolutely essential. You've got to watch movies. Sometimes you just kind of kick back and enjoy it. But then there are other times you stop it scene by scene and you write a scene by scene breakdown and you're looking for where the plot line points land, the major events that twist the plot in a new direction. You're looking at subplots and those little mini stories, M-I-N-I stories and how they play into the to the A story. You're looking at characters in terms of their transformation art. So there's watching movies, and sometimes you do it in a very rigorous fashion. Then reading scripts, similarly. You can just sit there and just kind of blow through a script and enjoy it, but then you can also do the same thing. You can do a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown, and you're doing the same sort of analysis that you would if you were watching a movie. 
Reading scripts is absolutely critical, particularly scripts written in the last five years because the style changes constantly. And so people who tell you, well, you can't do this, you can't do that, um, much more important for you to read scripts of professional writers, movie scripts, where you are seeing how professionals approach the writing and you're then taking that knowledge and bringing it to bear on your own writing. And then, of course, writing pages. And, you know, I have this thing I came up with on my blog that seems to be quite popular, which is one, two, seven, 14. One is read one script per week. Two is watch two movies per week. Seven is write one page a day, seven pages. And 14 is 14 hours a week. You should be basically two hours a day. You're researching another project. You're rewriting a project. You're doing character development. You're doing story development. You're generating and assessing story ideas. You're tracking trends. You're reading the trades. You know, if you want to do this, if you really want to do this, you have to understand that you are competing against people who are very serious minded and have a lot of talent. It's not easy. In fact, the odds against success are just enormous. But the way to do it is to approach it like you're a professional. And so if you can carve out 20 hours a week, or let's say 16 hours a week, you know, two hours a day, you know, as opposed to uh, going and, and eating lunch, you know, with the buddies for an hour and a half, well, no, use that time to actually do some work as a writer. You know, you need to learn the craft and then exhibit what you've learned on the page so that when you've written that script, um, it speaks to someone, you know, someone will get it and see that this is a professional writer. What does character development entail? Are you writing a backstory? To me, that's everything. It's everything. Here's another one of my sayings, ready? Begin with character, end with character, find the story in between. I don't care what paradigm people have in terms of story structure, how you get there is critical. And so you start with your characters. That's my take. You know, it, it, again, there's not one right way to do this. I'm just saying that this, I think, is a, is a smart way to go about it. Because the characters, it's their story. If we're writing a story, we are assuming that in some magical, mystical way, that story universe exists. Those characters exist. And if it's their story, they know it better than we do. And so character development is about getting curious. It's about asking questions. It's about spending time with the characters. And so the typical things that we see like biographies and questionnaires, those are great. I call those indirect engagement exercises because you're reflecting on the character. You're thinking about the character as opposed to direct engagement exercises. So for example, what if I have a character in mind? I'm going to imagine I'm a psychiatrist. This character is my patient. And if they're reticent to talk to me, I can even go one step further. They have been court appointed to appear with me as a psychiatrist, and they have to answer my questions. If they don't, they will stay stuck in the situation until they do. So you just create a situation in which, like I was saying earlier, you just ask questions. You get curious. When I was, that, that's a lesson I learned when I was an Air Force brat. You just ask people questions, you begin talking. And so you just, you type, you just let it go. You can even do something um, It's a little bit spiritual, I suppose you'd say in a way, where you're going to do um, either a monologue or a stream of consciousness with the character. It's sort of like a Vulcan mind melt, you know, like Star Trek, where you get a character in your mind and you do some deep breathing, you get yourself, so you're transitioning out of the busy world and you're going to be here now 
with this character and you set a timer for like 15 minutes and you put your fingers on the keyboard or pen on paper and you close your eyes and you just type and you just type and you know your mind will go oh i gotta get groceries or the cat and whatever just let that go you don't get attached to it you just keep coming back to this character and you get done with this and so you've got all these words that you've typed out some of them are like dialogue like a monologue and some of them are just like stream of consciousness 80 percent of it may seem like gobbledygook to you maybe 90 percent but 20 percent or 10 percent there's something really interesting that popped out there and that's getting in touch with the characters in a, at a subconscious level and they start to talk to you i've seen this happen time and time again i created a a prep class 10 years ago that i teach online six-week workshop taking a story from concept to outline and the first four weeks are all character development the second week is brainstorming that's all they do is brainstorm and i've had hundreds of people tell me that was the most eye-opening experience for them was doing that type of work again the characters exist we act on that belief and we reach out to them and get them talking to us so the character development that's those are some great examples for character development what can happen out of that is if you identify a protagonist in particular their state of disunity where they are disconnected from their authentic nature and that can inform if you know what the disunity state is that can inform where the unity state is and so now they're not going to just jump there then you're going to say okay so these plot elements and the characters with whom they intersect they're going to deconstruct their old ways of being because they don't work out here in the new world but in the process of that they're going to uncover their need their needs going to start to emerge this is very jungian jung talks about he says when an inner situation is not made conscious and he's talking about like conflict inner conflict it happens outside as fate now i don't know if that's real in you know in the real world but that's the protagonist story the protagonist starts off in a state of disunity and what happens in the plot is informed by that there's a synergy between it it's not just these random events it's like these characters that they intersect with and the events that they go through that's going to provide the basis of their transformation and so their disunity that gets deconstructed well now this stuff starts to come out into the light of consciousness their need and then they move into reconstruction now they're moving into their new mode of being and eventually toward unity so you can take that raw material that you get with your with your characters and see how that starts to shape the nature of the plot the story structure and it's not just plugging this in you know this has to happen on page 25 the the break into act two no you're doing it through a much more organic fashion with your characters and letting them inform you what what the structure will be and the final value of that is that you're writing multi-layered richly textured characters who actors want to play so character development to me is like everything it, it, uh, it's absolutely critical i'm loving this disunity to unity sort of uh, transformation can we use this as an example for a film uh, sure well there's so many you know that's why i call the book the protagonist journey because it's you know hollywood loves happy endings and even indie films generally have a happy ending and so that's that positive arc you know there are movies where characters don't go through an arc they don't they refuse to change or they go through a negative arc like 
um, Charles Foster Kane and Citizen Kane, started off in a state of unity in Colorado, and he was yanked out of there, and he always just wanted to go back there. That's what the snow globe represented, right? But so he ended up in this dissolute state and eventual despair and death. But most movies have a positive arc. And so, for example, the disunity to unity, those four movements, that's my language system. There's other ways to refer to it. And by the way, this aligns with what has become more and more popular now amongst pro writers that I know to thinking of the structure of four acts as opposed to three. If you look at the psychological journey of the character, you know, that the, these four movements uh, echo that. So let's look at a movie like The Silence of the Lambs. So Clarice Starling is um, in a major state of disunity at the beginning. She, um, her father was killed when she was 11 years old, so she was orphaned. She was sent to her uncle's Montana farm where she had a horrific experience where basically that, all those negative associations of death and whatnot were attached to an experience she saw when she witnessed the spring, the slaughter of the spring lambs. And that's why she has these dreams. That's an example of the unconscious trying to come into the light of consciousness, her dreams, right? And so she's, she's become a law enforcement officer. Her father was, a, was in the you know, sheriff's department. But she doesn't become a sheriff, no. She goes to the behavioral science unit in FBI, which deals with like serial killers and the motivations and the mindsets of people who are, in a sense, evil. She is drawn to that because she wants to understand how these guys could have killed her father. So she's got all this going on. She's also a woman in a heavily male environment. And um, she's trying to hide her West Virginia roots as Lecter you know, says, you know, you know more than three generations from poor white trash, right? Oh, that's good. So, um, so she's in a state of disunity. Uh -huh. And when I've said that Jung quote, you know, if a situation is, remains unresolved, it happens outside his fate, it's when Jack Crawford invites her in to go basically to tease and tantalize Lecter to try and get clues about the Buffalo Bill case, that had to happen. She had to, she could have met any other serial killer. It had to be Hannibal Lecter. Why? Because he's a psychotherapist and he could lead her into herself. She's never going to be able to move to unity unless she deals with that stuff that's deep, deep down in her Unconscious. So he's the perfect person. He's the mentor in Silence of the Lambs, even if he's a psychopath. He's not the nemesis. The nemesis is Buffalo Bill, right? So she has to go on this journey. And she's pulled out of being an agent in training to now she's in the field with Jack Crawford. She's, Jack Crawford tells her point blank when the first meeting, don't let Lecter inside your head which is exactly what she does. She lets Lecter inside her head because she knows intuitively that that's where she needs to be. She needs to have this guy. Of course, she's doing it ostensibly because she's trying to get clues to save Catherine Martin, who was the kidnap victim. Catherine Martin, in my view, is the attractor character because Clarice identifies with her. You know, Lecter says, you believe if you say, poor Catherine Martin, you can stop the awful crying in the lamps. She's a young single woman, just like Clarice. She's from the South, just like Clarice. She's a victim, just like Clarice was in terms of her parent getting killed. So you've got this journey of her becoming more and more, less and less afraid of, um, of being like a rookie and more and more embracing her role as an FBI agent. Remember she does that autopsy where she finds that clue uh, with, the, with the moth uh, uh, seed in the, one of the victim's mouths. So by the midpoint, 
she's really starting to become more proactive. So she's deconstructed her old ways of being, also deconstructed her fear about telling the truth to the lector. They make that deal, quid pro quo. You tell me things and I'll tell you, but nothing, I don't wanna hear about the case from you. I wanna hear about your personal life. And so she does start to talk about her personal life, leading to that big moment where she confesses the Montana farm to Lecter, which is key because she has to face that fear. And so uh, she's reconstituted, she's you know, reconstructed now and much more proactive. In fact, once uh, Lecter's gone, he escapes, she says it's all over, but then she realizes Lecter gave them a clue, again, mentor figure, we covet what we see. And so she now realizes, ah, the first victim was someone that Buffalo Bill saw, so I'm gonna go to his hometown. And she does this on her own. She's completely proactive now. She's bending rules. She's doing what she needs to do, you know, embracing her power. And all of that is to set in motion the final struggle between she and Buffalo Bill. Buffalo Bill represents the boogeyman, the guys who killed her father. So she's gotta face them. And if you look at that last, that last act is so great in, in Silence of the Lambs because she keeps going through doorways, one threshold after another. She's gotta go through deeper and deeper into Buffalo Bill's lair until she faces down her nemesis and, and she kills him. You know, so that's a classic example of a character who goes from disunity toward a state of unity through those four stages. And so Lecter would not be the shapeshifter chameleon trickster? No, there's actually, the trickster characters, Jack Crawford, who, cause he, he lies to her. He's using her as bait to get um, Hannibal Lecter. Uh, he, if there's a scene in the autopsy where she's surrounded by all these men, these male, and he's, he's, he gets the head of the, the sheriff's guy, let's go talk in private, you know, and he does this thing like he's saying, let's get away from her. So he's an, he's an ally, but he's also kind of an enemy, and she calls him on that. And then even at the end where she says, she's found out that, that Buffalo Bill's a seamstress, and you know, she's at the home, and, 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 uh, and Crawford says, no, no, we've got, we know where he is, he's in Joliet, Illinois, we're gonna go, we're gonna go get him, thanks for all your help. So she's not, you see what I'm saying? Enemy, ally, ally. Also, Alex Chilton, who's the, uh, the head of the psychiatric, or the prison where Lecter is, he's also a trickster. Remember, he hits on her, like in the first scene. He says, you know, Baltimore can be kind of a fun town if you know. <laughs> and then he also plants a recording device in there. He's listening to her talking to Lecter and then takes Lecter away from her to Memphis. So those are your trickster characters, I think. Lect and Lecter's a men uh, mentor. The attractor is Catherine Martin, and, uh, and the nemesis is Buffalo Bill. What makes a good story? A good story, uh, well, you can't stray too far from Aristotle, beginning, middle, and end, you know. But you've gotta have some emotional tie-in. You've gotta have some characters that you care about. And you gotta have a situation that's compelling that they find themselves in. So those are three key elements, a structure, but a central character, typically the protagonist character, that we experience that story vicariously through them, and they go through a series of challenges in a compelling situation. And most often, we like to see them really put to the test, really challenged, and we like to see them change. You know, Campbell talks about the whole point of the hero's journey, Joseph Campbell, is transformation. And I think a big reason why that's the case, why stories and movies in particular 
you know, in a two hour period, you have a character starting off one in one state of their psyche, you know, state of psyche, their state of being, and they end up in quite another. We want to believe we can change. You know, that's the message that Madison Avenue, with every commercial, buy this product, you'll be better, you know. We want to believe we can change. And stories give us a hope that we can because they're about characters that do change. But again, you got to have a story structure, but the main thing is you got to have a character we relate to or emotionally invested in. They go through a series of challenges and tests, and we see them change over time. If that's a compelling enough uh, set of circumstances in which we find them, then that's the basis of a good story. Can we think of a, a film that's done quite well where if the character hadn't been so interesting or their transformation wasn't so stark that if you hadn't plugged in that character, the story would be no good. It was so simple or it didn't really work, but because the character's journey was so profound, it resonated with people. I think it's like almost any story. I mean, if the, if the protagonist isn't compelling, if we don't have a, an emotional connection to them, then what's the point, right? Like, I'm a huge Pixar fan. I've got sons who are nine and a half years apart and came along at the time where I was basically forced to see every Pixar movie. When I say forced, I just meant because they came out and the kids wanted to see them which was just a wonderful blessing for me because Pixar is just you know, phenomenal storytellers. And I know because I, I know Mary Coleman, who's the, the head of the story department there at, at Pixar, that nothing gets greenlit there unless they know quite clearly what those points of universal connection are to the audience. How is the audience going to tie into the story emotionally? So, I would say that any great movie or any great story, that traffics in that. I mean, there's got to be something going on, even if it's an anti-hero movie, where there's something human there that we can connect with, that we can relate to. Um, Taxi Driver, for example, you know, Travis Bickle. There's a guy, he's lonely. You know, he, he wants to go on a date. Uh, he is, is living, you know, he's just loneliness right there. I mean, everybody at some point has been lonely or felt like an outsider or an outcast. And so that's, that's enough right there that I'm interested in the guy to see how he's existing in one of the most heavily populated places in the United States, you know, Manhattan and New York. So I would say that that's absolutely critical. You've got to find that point of emotional connection. I'd say it even goes further than, than that. You as a writer have to find how you're emotionally connected to the character because that's the kind of passion that can manifest itself on the page where the words lift up off the page and into the imagination of the reader because you so are so dialed into that character that their experience infuses your own writing. So it's absolutely critical. That, I mean, people go to movies to think, yes, and be entertained, yes, but I think fundamentally they go to movies to, be, to feel something. Well, if we take uh, slightly older movies, ones that had Humphrey Bogart, so Maltese Falcon or Casablanca, whatever, I'm wondering how do we feel that connection even if we don't see ourselves as 
his character. His characters always had a lot of confidence. Maybe they were a little more jaded or cynical. They were always kind of the truth tellers. But how are we tapping into those same Humphrey Bogart characters? Okay, so let's take Casablanca, which is the number one script on the WGA top 100 scripts or 101, which is ironic because they never finished the script. I mean, they never really had a complete script on set. But um, what's his issue? His, he's in a state of disunity at the beginning. He started off as a loyalist. He was a passionate believer in you know, the good and the right. He fought on the, on the side of the loyalists in the Spanish you know, Civil War. He falls in love with Ilsa. They have that wonderful idyllic experience in Paris. Then the Germans are coming into town. He goes to the train station. She doesn't show up. His heart's broken. So he goes to Casablanca and starts this business. He drinks alone. He plays chess alone. He does have presumably some sort of sexual dalliance with that one woman, but there's no real connection there. And he's a complete cynic at this point. He's cut himself off from that idealistic part of himself that used to exist. And so that whole hard-boiled Humphrey Bogart, you know, I came from the waters and I was misinformed, that whole thing, right? That's just, that's a mask. That's his cynical mask. That's his public persona. Inside is his idealism, is his passion for life. It's still there, but it's buried. It's in the, like, per Jung, it's in the darkness of the unconscious. It needs to come out, which is why it happens outside his fate. Who shows up and where? Ilsa. Of all, and he says, of all the lousy gin joints in the world, you had to, right? Yeah, it's like the biggest coincidence in the world, or is it? It's like fate. Fate shows that, you know, determines that she show up there because he's got to deal with his past. So she's clearly the attractor character for the protagonist, right? And so how do we relate to that? How many of us have been jilted? How many of us have had our hearts broken in a relationship? You know, that's pretty universal. I, I suspect that 90% of people have been in a situation where they had their hearts broken. We can relate to that with this guy. It's, that's when you really boil it down on a human level, that's what this guy's dealing with. For all that bluster, and all that business savvy and everything else, and that cynicism, he's a guy who had his heart broken. So there's a universal point of connection. So then these set of characters show up. There's Major Strasser, who represents the Germans. He's the nemesis character, right? Because Rick's got these letters of transit, and originally he's thinking about taking he and Ilsa once they reconnect. He's gonna take her, and off they go, getting out of Casablanca. But there's the mentor figure, Victor Laszlo who knows that Rick has that idealistic side. There's a great conversation that they have when Laszlo comes in from a meeting and he's at his wrist injured, and so Rick and he sit at the, stand at the bar, and Laszlo tells him as much, basically intimates, that he knows that this guy can come back and be on the side of the good side, on the right. And so, and you've got uh, Captain Renault, who's one of the great tricksters of all time. I'm shocked, shocked to find there's gambling going on here. You know, he plays all sides, right, for his own good. Um, so at the end, Rick does get in touch with his idealism, and he does reconnect with that part of himself because he, he, he moves from selfish to selfless. He gives the letters of transit, and uh, Laszlo and uh, Ilsa go off, and he's contributing to the, to the, to the side of the good. So, but the main point, you know, circling back to your point, um, we relate to him because he's had his heart broken, and that's a universal thing. So even though it's, it's Sam Spade, in effect, you know, there in Casablanca, 
he's still a guy who's been crushed romantically and emotionally. Where does the creation of a great story begin? I think it varies from story to story, from writer to writer. You know, I've interviewed so many of them. Some of them start with a theme. I don't do that. You know, theme, central theme, a theme, a central theme of a story will emerge over time. But some people start off with a thematic uh, point of view. A lot of people start that I have interviewed, and this is more where I'm at, start off with a character or characters. And um, I think that works because if the character is interesting and you can mine that, then that's where people can find those points of connection. Some start off with a story concept. I, I do this thing on my blog, I've done it now 10 straight years, yeah, 10 years, called a story idea each day for a month. So in April, every April, 30 days, I, I c collect stories along the way in my computer and then I just run one each day and I say, okay, so here's the basis of this news article. What would we do with this if there were a movie? And get people to think about this. I'd say, what if we did this as a drama? Wait a minute, what if we did this as a thriller? What if you spun it this way? Like I just heard one on the way over. This is amazing. So a guy is at Dallas Love Field today, a passenger, you know, waiting to take off, when there's this hubbub there. And as it turns out, they're bringing back the body, the remains of a guy who fought for the United States uh, in Vietnam. And they've recently discovered his remains. His son was five when he last saw his father at that base leaving to go to Vietnam. The pilot of the plane flying his father's remains to Dallas is his son. Is that amazing? So they, they had all of the people, like all those people who do the luggage and the, they, they, they created these line and they had a water, they were doing a water tribute. They were shooting like fire hoses and stuff. They had military guys there. And the guy who said it was that everybody was pressed up against the windows because this word had spread that this was what happening. And he said, it was the eeriest thing. Nobody's phone, nobody talking, no click, 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 click of the luggage. Everybody just standing still watching this reverent moment happen. So I'd say things like the news articles, you know, I don't know if that's a great story or not, but it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful moment, but maybe that's an opportunity to be, you know, a story. So I think it can happen from anywhere, you know, be open to it. Um, the magic words, what if, right? Um, Mark Norman's son calls him up and says, what if Shakespeare had writer's block? And that was the inspiration for Shakespeare in Love. Um, and Hook, written by uh, James V. Hart, came about like a breakfast conversation where his son said, what if Peter Pan grew up? So I think concepts are big. I think they're really important now, maybe as important as they were the kind of high concept thing that we talked about in the 80s and 90s so much because of this whole idea that unless you've got some sort of pre-existing IP, you know, Hollywood's scared to greenlight that. So it takes a really, really strong concept, a strong story concept. So I'd say theme, characters, story concept. I mean, those are all, you know, I love the Coen brothers. The way that Miller's Crossing started was this image of a hat being tossed across a creek in the woods. 
That was literally where that started. So whatever it is, you know, find if you're passionate about it, and if you're passionate about it, then, then write the hell out of it. You know. I'm sorry, why have the screenplays changed in terms of reading one, let's say, from 20 years ago, from one two years ago? In terms of are they are, are things written in a briefer manner? Or? Yes. Now, this is where one area I feel pretty confident that I understand pretty well. I used to teach a class called the History of American Screenwriting, which was created by uh, my colleague down at the University of North Carolina, Dana Cohen. And I taught that class, I think, four times. And it was really a brilliant class because it would go decade by decade, starting with like the 1890s. Every week was like a different decade, 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. And so you're studying the evolution of screenwriting and filmmaking, particularly in the United States, and the role of the screenwriter in the process, particularly in Hollywood. One of the things that we did in that class was we looked at screenplay structure and format and style as it evolved over time. In fact, the term screenplay didn't really come into existence until the 30s and 40s. Before then, it was known, well, it was basically just a, a, a shot list, and then it became known as a continuity during the silent film era. But then once talkies came along, then they started bringing in, Hollywood started to bring in all these playwrights to the, the dialogue, right? And so then it became a screen play, two words. So if you look at movies from the 30s and even into the 40s, you'll oftentimes see that credit being screen play, as a screen version of a play. So then eventually screen plays kind of became a little bit more of their own thing, and we joined them together as screenplay. So uh, I've studied this quite uh, you know, comprehensively, and I know for a fact that it's always evolving. So that always cracks me up when people say, well, you can't do this or you have to do that. It's always evolving. It's constantly evolving. So for example, um, if, you look at, if you look at scripts from, there were no things as selling scripts or spec scripts back in the 40s and 50s and 60s. It was all for hire, well, 40s and 50s, 30s, 40s and 50s. And so it was all, all these things were filled with shots, you know, close up, zoom in, all that stuff. What happened once the spec script market evolved was directors said, well, we don't want it. We don't want you to tell us how to direct the movie. We're directors, we're gonna do that. So then we pulled out that, generally speaking, we pulled out that camera jargon and directing lingo. And so that led to the whole we see, we move, we hear, and then that started to get a bit tiresome. And so then what we started to do was just, just describe what's happening. And so then when I first broke in, it was like, okay, so every paragraph you should try to have no more than five lines, as opposed to like these big blocks of 15, 20, 30 lines, because it's much easier to read. Script readers are in effect the threshold guardians of Hollywood. And we try to make it as easy for them to read as possible. Nowadays, um, I think that you know the general feeling, and this is not a rule, but the general feeling is that the paragraph should be no longer than three lines. But a, be a better way to think about it is not like that sort of regimented thing. I think the better way to think about it is each line of scene description, each paragraph of scene description, that's a way of indicating a camera shot. You're not saying it's a camera shot, but if you think about the scene as you're writing it and you're thinking, okay, that's a close-up, I see that as a close-up and I see this as a, uh, as a wide shot and I see this as a medium shot. Now you're not saying that in the script, but you're breaking up each paragraph to suggest that that's a camera shot. That's a great way to 
not only direct the action on the page, but also ensure that your paragraphs aren't that long. You're breaking them up into one, two, or three lines. So scripts today, this is why it's important. Yeah, it's great to read the older scripts, but it's really important to read the scripts that come out nowadays because the styles are constantly changing. We're seeing something happening right now, and I don't know if it's gonna to continue to go this way, but including images in scripts. Like if you read the script that uh, Brian Woods and Scott Beck did for A Quiet Place, it has an image of their Monopoly board. It's got uh, an image comparing like uh, the Statue of Liberty and I think the Eiffel Tower and then this big tower that's out in the field there, just so you get a sense of it. They change font sizes. They use uh, one page has like a word on it or even a letter, you know. Um, so it's much more visually graphic. And I guess it makes sense because movies are primarily a visual medium. Some people may resist that as being kind of um, a cheat, but we're starting to see some of that now. And I don't think that's necessarily wrong. It could be that we eventually, that's what screenplays become. They do include images. And you could certainly make an argument that why not? Because again, it's a, it's a visual medium. So it's constantly in a, a, a state of change, which is why if anybody tells you you can't do this or you have to do that, then, then you know you're not talking to the right people. You need to read scripts by professional screenwriters and see what they do and realize that we have a lot of latitude to tell the story the best way it needs to be told. And maybe that's why emojis and different things have seeped into, I'm sure, I don't know if you've received papers that have like an emoji in yeah. them or here or there, but it's become part of communication, images, symbols. You see them in scripts because of texting now. You know, we, wouldn't, we didn't have texting, you know, until 15 years ago or whatnot, right? So when you don't, you know, some people, my university students will try to do that as dialogue. I say, well, it's not really dialogue. It's its own thing. And so the, the typical thing now is to, to do left margin, just like you're doing action, right? And you do, you know, the name of the character, colon, and then their little texting thing, and it can have an emoji in it. And then you do a shift enter. You don't do two lines, a line space. You do shift enter, so it's right under there, the next text, shift enter, the next text. And that's how most people uh, that I know handle texting. But yeah, emojis would be there. We wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't, who knows? In 10 years, we'll be doing something different, and that's gonna be reflected in. And screenplays, yeah. Some kind of matrix thing coming through the computer. Right? Yeah. Is outlining a must? Again, every writer is different. Um, I would say that if you have any pretensions of working in TV, yes. No script goes, they, no, no project goes to script, no episode, unless they break it in, in prep. And that typically involves either a beat sheet or an outline. Um, on the feature side of things, if you're writing on spec, well, you know, if you've got 12 months and you want to just start with fade in and see where it goes, that's okay. But I definitely recommend outlining. If you've not outlined, you should outline at least once and see what that process is like. The way I approach it that I think enlivens the experience is, as I said before, we work with the characters. So week one, protagonist character treatment. Ask seven key questions of the protagonist so you're engaging them and really digging down into who they are. You know, questions like, what do they fear the most? That's an interesting question. You know, why does this story have to happen to this character at this time? Think about their sort of place in life. 
Um, second week, we do brainstorming, like some of those exercises I was talking about, uh, questionnaires, biographies, these direct engagement exercises, interviews, and monologues, and streams of consciousness. Third week, we now move to the plot. So we talk about what's the beginning of the story, what's the end of Act 1, what's the end of Act 2, and what's the end of the story. Just get a sense of those four primary plot line points. But we're also identifying subplots. My principle there is subplot equals relationship. So whatever characters you've come up with, the primary characters in your story, then start to look at them in terms of their relationships. And if you can work with character archetypes, that's very helpful. Oh, this is a protagonist-attractor relationship. This is a protagonist-mentor relationship, et cetera. And so you start to think in terms of subplots. In week four, we, do, we move to the psychological domain, and we talk about these four theme line movements, disunity, deconstruction, reconstruction, unity. So for the first four weeks, it really is focused on character. And by the time you get to the last stage, where we're busting out three by five inch index cards and doing that whole thing, you know, that you've spent so much time with the characters and generated so much content that it's, there's a vibrancy to it. There's an aliveness to it. There's a vitality to it. It's not just literally plugging in this to that and this to that and this to that. You're really seeing the story unfold and you're sensing the, how the characters are involved in the protagonist's psychological journey and their arc. So I would say it's not mandatory to do an outline. I highly recommend it. Um, you know, if you feel that it's better for you to write a treatment version of it, a more literary thing, that's fine too, or a beat sheet. But like I do outlines and they can run to 25, 30 pages long, like single space, because I put everything in there. Like, what's the simple conflict? Why are these characters, lines of dialogue I've heard? How I'm going to get in and out of the scene, transitions to the next scene? I put it all there. So I would say, uh, I would strongly encourage people to do an outline, yes. And particularly if they want to work in TV, they just absolutely have to. So let's say somebody doesn't want to do an outline. And you say, all right, that's fine. That's your style, I, even though I, I recommend it. And then you read their script, and then you see that it could have benefited from them taking time, seeing the story from... What's your answer to that? I mean, Well, you... here's, the, here's the thing. I'd say nine times out of ten, I'm not going to get that script. Because they're going to crash and burn by page 50 or 60. Because oh. they don't know where they're going. Anybody can write a first act. It's very, you know... You gotta establish the key characters, the story universe, central conflict, uh, the, the uh, uh, atmosphere and tone. Something happens, you know, the inciting incident or the call to adventure, uh, and then something propels them off into this new world, right? Well, so you can probably off that energy go, okay, the next 10, 15 pages, and then, okay, maybe five more, and, but I don't know where I'm going. Uh, maybe I better figure this out. Okay, so I'll write another 10, 15, but well, that's stupid. That doesn't really work. Oh, wow. And so, you know, people will get, I think the number one reason why people do not finish a script is because they don't know where they're going. If you do an outline, you do know where you're going. Like, were well, you familiar growing up in DC? Um, there's a Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. I do a blog post on this, it's pretty funny. The Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel uh, extends from Virginia Beach up to the Delmarva Peninsula, which is Delaware, Maryland, and, and Virginia, right? And it's long, it's like 20 some odd miles long. And so you've got this span, which is a bridge, and then there's a tunnel for like a mile and a half, which is creepy enough because you're like under the Atlantic Ocean yes. in this tunnel. Mm -hmm. Then you come up and there's a mid part of the bridge and then there's another tunnel and there's another part of the bridge. That middle part of the bridge, which is about 10 miles out, if you go during the day, 
you cannot see land anywhere. There's no land. You're on a bridge in the middle of the ocean. If you have an outline, at least you know where you're going and you just keep going and going because that middle of the, of the story, the act two, can be so discombobulating sometimes. And so you, you know where you're going because you've got the thing broken. And so you're trusting that you're going to come out the other end. So, um, but yeah, I have read, absolutely, I've read scripts where I go, gosh, yeah, they just didn't, they didn't nail the structure, the structure's a mess or, but if there's something there and the characters are vibrant, then yeah, you can, we can work around that. Structure is, is, you know, it's, it's important, absolutely, for screenplays, but uh, there are ways to get to that, you know. The, the characters who are alive and vibrant and you know, compelling, that's really the harder part, I think, in some respects. Great. Wow. Sorry, you just triggered a memory of I remember being a kid and being afraid to have my grandparents drive me over that. Oh, God. <laughs> I think yes. you just, maybe that's why I'm afraid of bridges. I think yeah, you just, there was a subconscious coming out. See, uh, yeah, my, yeah. see you brought yeah, it out. There, there we go. go. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot all about that. Do you have any suggestions to help writers brainstorm for ideas? Yes. Well, first of all, let's just imagine that we've got 10 tracks of our brain, okay? You know, that our brain can do 10 things at one time. One of those tracks, if you're a writer, should be always sensitive to and aware of ideas. They're out there. They're out there all over the place. They're in newspaper articles. They're in conversations you hear with people at the coffee shop. They're on the radio. They're on click, your click, 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 click thing that happens. I know, for example, I know David Rabinowitz and Charlie Wachtel who wrote Black Klansman. And I interviewed them and I said, well, how did you guys come up with it? And I think David said, well, I was trying to avoid writing, and so I was just doing the click, click, click thing, and I stumbled on this Facebook article about this guy, Ron Stallworth, who was the first black policeman in Colorado Springs who then did this thing with the Ku Klux Klan. So that's how they discovered it. So one thing is just be conscious of it. The other thing is be intentional. You know, like every day, you should be thinking about story ideas. Now. People are not going to necessarily, you know, it's going to vary from person to person, but there have been times in my life where I literally said, I'm going to come up with an idea a day, every day. I'm going to come up. And, it's, and, and uh, a third point to that related is Dr. Linus Pauling, who's the only person to win two Nobel Prizes. And he has that saying, the best way to come up with a good idea is to come up with a lot of ideas. And so that's a third point that you can do is just generate a lot of ideas. Keep a file, like I've got a word file stretching back 20 some odd years with literally hundreds and hundreds of ideas, most of them awful. But you keep working that muscle and then eventually I think chances are that you're going to surface something. Now, then you have to assess the ideas. And so there's certain questions you can ask like, well, is this big enough to be a movie? You know, who's the audience for this? Um, what's the hook? You know, that central conceit. Like when I sold Canine, you know, um, I remember going into an executive's office and they said, God, what you guys did was so brilliant. You took the buddy action comedy formula, the police cop, and you put in Ren 1010, who was like the biggest star in Hollywood back in the late 20s and 30s. 
And I learned a very valuable lesson there, which is that you always, when somebody gives you a compliment, even if you didn't mean it, you go, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. So <laughs> I said, yeah, that's exactly what we were thinking, because I hadn't thought that at all. But, um, you know, you, that idea, I, I could walk in, at that point in time in 1987, I could have walked into any producer's office or any bar where people were hanging out. What are you working on? I said, yeah, I got this idea, canine. Loner cop, new partner, police dog. They would see that. So the, the hook there is the police dog. Nobody had done that, you know. So you look for like um, inception, the idea of being able to go inside someone's Groundhog Day, we're living the same. That thing, what's that thing that's gonna set it off from you know, something else? So those are some keys, you know, have one part of your brain going, be intentional about it, um, you know, be generating a lot of ideas and hoping that you'll come up with you know, some really good ones, some strong ones off that, and then assess them to make sure that you feel like it's big enough and good enough to be a movie. I have a Joseph Campbell quote here, and it reads, if the path before you is clear, you are probably on someone else's. So can this also be applied to storytelling? So if the story you've begun writing is clear, it's probably already been written? Yeah, that, that is one of my favorite quotes oh, of Campbell. Okay. Um, I'm a huge Joseph Campbell fan. I'm a huge Joseph Campbell fan. I think that was him. <laughs> that was it, hey Joe. Um, of course, that wonderful series, The Power of Myth, with Bill Moyers, that's on Netflix, I think. Yes, I've watched it. Yeah, it's wonderful. I love his style too. Sorry oh, well, he, he, he was asked he, one time, he said, do you pray? He said, no, I read. He read 10 hours a day. You know, he read thousands and thousands and thousands. He created his own field of study, you know. I, I in my office, when I got my office at DePaul, the first thing I did was I put up on my whiteboard, follow your bliss, Joseph Campbell, and it's still there. Because I use that when I meet with my students, I want them to see that. And I start each class, I'll get to your question. I start each class with that point, follow your bliss. You may not hear anything else from my class that is of meaning to you or value to you, but this, find that thing that you're passionate about, that energizes you, that brings you joy, that you may have talent for, and do that. Whether it's an avocation or a vocation, do that, because that's the best chance you have at living an authentic life, of aligning yourself with something authentic in yourself. So the thing about the path, that's the point. You know, my university students, given the economic considerations of where we are nowadays, you know, they come in and it's like, I, I, I feel, I, I love writing, but you know, my parents want me to do this degree in accounting. And I say, okay, you know, I understand it, you know, in terms of the economic insecurity, and you're not guaranteed, you know, a living in the arts. So, maybe what you do is you do that accounting and you take this as a minor and you're watching movies and TV and you're reading scripts and you're writing and you're doing it as an avocation. You're doing it because it brings you joy, but at least you're taking care of paying the bills. But at some point, you're gonna probably have to come up to, to this point that Campbell said. The path that's laid out for you, the accounting path, that's probably not your path, at least creatively and spiritually. You're gonna have to do something that incorporates this other path. You know, Campbell talks about how that's sh the should. It's getting rid of the should, right? And pursuing that which is authentic to the, their bliss. So, yes. Um, and I do think that that's, that's the case where a lot of writers will look at things that sell. Like I would imagine now, there are probably lots and lots of scripts that have started to come in that have 
images and different font sizes and stuff like A Quiet Place because the movie did quite well, did over $300 million. And so you're having people emulating a style and a storytelling, a way of storytelling that may not be reflective of their voice. They may be more about imitating someone else. And so that's that question again. But it also relates to the protagonist. The protagonist starts off in a state of disunity. They are living on someone else's path. The path they need to be living on is the one they take on their journey. So that, that saying of Campbell has multiple levels of meaning. And uh, I think it's, it's a really profound insight. You know, Jung, again, inspired Campbell. And Jung talked about the, the great, um, I can't remember the next word, not honor, but the great task of our existence is to become who we are. That it's already inside us and it needs to emerge. Campbell talks about the hero's journey being a journey not of attainment, but reattainment. So it's already there and it needs to be recaptured or captured. That path is where the protagonist goes to uncover that. And so again, that, 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 that comment from Campbell has got a lot of layers of meaning to it. Yeah. Why do you think Joseph Campbell resonated so much with Carl Jung and not Freud or Fritz Perl or some of these other? Because the same reason, I mean, Freud was very reductive, you know, and uh, Jung was exactly the opposite, which is why he broke with Freud. You know, he was a, a acolyte of Freud for a while. He saw the universe as being this wide open, uh, you know, his father was a minister, his grandfather was a minister, he thought about becoming a minister. He was very interested in spiritualism. Um, he had a very open and profound uh, appreciation for the, the wild divergence and diversity of human experience. And so uh, Campbell was the same way. He came back after spending four or five years in Europe, I think he came back to Columbia, and they said, well, why don't you become a, get a PhD and you'll have this area, this specific, you know, specific area of focus, your dissertation will be something with a colon, you know, da-da-da-da, colon, da-da-da-da. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. You know, for lack of a better word, he was a generalist. He wanted to explore the diversity of all these different cultures and all these different stories and look at them and find the universality through the specifics of those stories, which is how he came up with the idea of the hero's journey. So he and Jung were quite aligned in that regard. And in fact, Campbell edited a book on Jung. And um, heavily, again, if you, if you read Jung, you'll see where Campbell got a lot of his ideas. And by the way, that is an excellent interview with Bill Moyers. Oh, yeah, it's fantastic. The powers of be. I mean, the power of myth. Oh, it's fantastic. At least watch the first episode where they talk about Star Wars. You know. Oh yeah, that's right. Because yeah. he gives he gives a wonderful. I've got it on my blog. He's got a wonderful summary of the hero's journey, like about a two minute summary of it. Right. And Bill Moyers was really the perfect counterpart to to speak with him. They they mesh so well. He's a Baptist minister. Oh. And he was trying to wrap his head around these rather Eastern notions, you know, Eastern, like Buddhist notions, sure, you know, uh -huh. that Campbell was heavily influenced by. Yeah. Should screenwriters know the ending of their story before beginning writing one? Well, again, you know, no writer is the same and every story is different. Um, I'm reminded of the Writers Guild strike in 1988, 
which is the longest strike to date. I broke into 1987 and within a year we were on strike and that strike lasted, I think 26 weeks, half the year. And it was a bummer because you couldn't earn money. Um, but what I did was I would go on these picketing, the picket line and I would tag the older writers because I wanted to hear about the old Hollywood days, you know, the studio system and whatnot. And I remember at the Fox lot, there was a conversation I had with this guy from uh, New York. I don't remember his name, but he was very funny, very outspoken. And he at one point said to me, Scott, he said, uh, you got to know four things to know before you start writing the script. What's the beginning of the story? What's the end of act one? What's the end of act two? And what's the ending of the story? He said, you don't got that? You don't got dick. That's what he told me. <laughs> Was this Donald Trump? <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. <laughs> uh, um, and so one of those is the ending. You know, again, going back to that bridge analogy, if you know where you're going, even if you can't see, maybe you can see in the distance that lighthouse, you know, because you know where you're going. Um, and also another reason why if you work with the protagonist in their disunity, oftentimes that indicates that unity state. If you just go 180 degrees from where they start, boom. Like my favorite movie is The Apartment with Jack Lemmon. And at the beginning of the movie, he finds himself in a really weird situation. He gave his key to his apartment, he's a bachelor, to an upper level management guy who just asked him for a favor one night to carry out a tryst, as it turns out, uh, an extramarital affair. So at the beginning of the story, we see C.C. Baxter, Jack Lemmon, where there are these four upper level management guys who are, who are using his apartment almost nightly. And so he's living in a state of disunity in that he's not even able to live in his apartment. Moreover, he's basically a decent guy, but the reason he's doing that is because these guys all say the same thing, like after every night. Hey, buddy boy, we got a review coming up. Gonna give you good marks. Hopefully you get that promotion. Because he, he works in this like sea of accounting people with, you know, no, there weren't even cubicles. It's like these just little desks. And he's bought into the corporate mentality. He wants to go up the corporate ladder. Not necessarily because he's greedy. He just wants to get into a better way station in life. But that's his state of disunity. And he's also enamored of Frank Kubelik, who's Shirley MacLaine, the elevator operator, but he can't screw up the courage to ask her out. As it turns out, she's having an affair with his boss, Mr. Sheldrake, Fred McMurray. And so that crushes him when he finds out. Worse, Sheldrake asks for the key which means that he's now having an affair with the woman that Baxter loves in Baxter's house or apartment and in his bed, right? So just a horrible situation. Well, if you look at where he is, he's enamored of the corporate thing and yet he's in love with this woman and we know he's basically a decent guy. You can almost see where, oh, eventually he's gonna have to reject the corporate thing, which is what he does. But there are things he needs to go through along the way. He needs to bond with Frank Kubelik. She has an attempted suicide at his place, and so they're together for two or three days, so they have a chance to connect with each other. 
He's got a next door neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus, who's the mentor figure. The, everybody in the apartment building thinks that Jack, the, the Baxter is having all these parties <laughs> all the time, you know? The doctor says, when you die, I want to donate your body to the university. We want to see that, 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 how you did that, you know? But so Dr. Dreyfus gets to him and says, what you, you need, he says, you need to be a minch. You know what that is, Baxter? A human being. And he's giving that advice. So at the end of the day, when Sheldrake, he's now at this point, by the end of the movie, Baxter is now in the office next to Sheldrake on the 26th floor. So he has completely achieved like the ultimate in corporate life. He's right there, right next to the boss. Well, the boss asks for his key again because he had to throw it out because his, his affair, he's now separated from his wife and this whole thing. And Baxter doesn't give it to him. He gives him the key to the executive washroom instead. And Sheldrake is like, what are you doing? He says, save it, your old payola won't work with me. He says, you know what I've become? A minch, a human being. So he takes those words. So you can see by the fact that he starts off in the state of disunity where he's bought into the corporate mentality that if he's gonna achieve unity, he's gonna probably reject that. So um, I do think that, that knowing the end of the story is critical, but it's oftentimes indicated right there just by virtue of what you learn about your protagonist at the beginning. Which is interesting because The Graduate is kind of a, a twist on that. It's where he doesn't wanna be part of the, the corporate world and he's still having an affair, but it's, it's almost out of desperation because he doesn't know what to do with his life. And he's got all this pressure and, you know, plastics, that's what, you know, it's just interesting because that's kind of a... Yes, absolutely. Um, he's completely lost and floundering. He doesn't buy into the... Uh, ben, Benjamin. He doesn't buy into the plastic uh, existence of his parents and their friends and that whole thing and that generation. And he turns to this affair with Mrs. Robinson, you know, just because it's something to do. And it's not really that he becomes at all even approximating what is his authentic nature until he meets Elaine, Mrs. Robinson's daughter. And that's when he finally gets on board. But even that's a little bit fraudulent because it's like he's so desperately yearning for some meaning in his life he projects that onto her, which is why at the end, when the director uh, said, did not say cut in the bus, he just let that keep rolling. And you see them sort of, they're excited at first and then they're just kind of sitting there and they don't know what they've done really. You know, um, you remember 500 Days of Summer where they say at the beginning, uh, Tom, Tom, uh, uh, you know, had a, uh, I figured Tom had a bad notion, or you know, a flawed notion of what romance was, due to his his, his bad interpretation of the ending of <laughs> of the Graduate. You know, because he thinks they fall in love, how beautiful! And really, it's not that way at all. It's like he just did this out of desperation and wanting to rebel and find some meaning. I don't think he really necessarily loved her, and she she wanted to rebel too. You know, so that's a bad. She runs off with him. <coughs> so yeah, uh, that's another case of a character that totally starts off in a state of disunity and sort of moves toward unity, but not really. I have a William Goldman quote here, and one of his quotes reads, screenplays are structure and that's all they are. So do you agree with this quote? And why do you think so many screenwriters argue about structure? Well, uh, first of all, I do, I mean, it's hard to not agree with William Goldman, who is arguably the dean of contemporary American screenwriters. I mean, 
an amazing legacy and I never met him, but I know people who have and just said that he was just the greatest guy. Um, and so the idea that screenplays are structure, there's a very real way in which that's true, I think. Ultimately, a screenplay is a pre-movie. It's, you know, it's, it's a, a template and a guide to make a movie. And so there is a structural component just that, like that, where it gets budgeted and uh, you know, they do everything that they have to do in terms of the pre-production and production. Uh, from a writing standpoint, it's also true because beginning, middle, and end, and subplots and all that stuff too. Um, why people argue about it? I think that a lot of it is people want or are inclined to think about screenplays at a surface level, like page counts and act breaks and that sort of thing. Stylistic things like you can't have any unfilmables or flashbacks or voiceover narration is weak writing because that puts the conversation in a realm where it's pretty easy. And in reality, to write a great script, it's none of that. It's all about immersing yourself in the lives of your characters and seeing what emerges from that process. And that's not easy. And there is no golden parachute secret way of doing that. Characters are slippery and many of them are hard to know. And figuring out the relationships and what they need and what they want and their conscious goal and unconscious goal and examining their personal history, which is everything that's happened to them, to find out their backstory elements, which are the key elements that come forward into the story. That's hard work. And that requires trust and faith that the characters exist. And that's, that's a conversation that people, I think, are afraid of. And so they'll argue about story structure. And I've seen this, Flame Wars. I wrote a blog a series of blog articles on these so-called screenwriting rules. They want to talk about these rules. There are no rules. If there were rules, there would be rule books. There are conventions. There are expectations. There are even paradigms, but not rules. And so people want to reduce it to rules. They want to reduce it to formula. They want to reduce it to specific paradigms, to structure as plot. When structure is not just plot, there's the external world of action and dialogue, which I call the plot line. That's the realm of the physical journey. That's only half the story. There's the internal world. So where there's dialogue, there's subtext. And where there's action, there's intention. What are the characters' intentions behind their actions? And where there's the plot line, there's a theme line. So the plot line answers the question, what is the story about? The theme line answers the question, what does the story mean? And that's the psychological journey compared to the physical journey. And so that conversation that we, that's constantly floating around, that's up there in that top realm, the plot line, structure as plot, you need to get down in that other part. That's where the conversation needs to be having. We need to be having that conversation. Moreover, as I said up front, I think that's where you start the conversation. That's your dialogue with the story, is with the characters. 
I don't care what paradigm they use, if they've started with the characters and immersed themselves in the lives of those characters, more often than not, they're gonna come up with the story structure out of that and those characters are gonna be alive and vibrant. So the, the, again, the answer I think is that people are not comfortable with that sort of engagement with characters on an existential level where you believe they exist and now I'm asking you to, do, to get inside their heads or talk to them or engage them in conversation. That's, I think, for many people, something that they feel uncomfortable with. If they can say, oh yeah, they need to have the, the break into act two on page 25, it can't be page 23, it can't be page 29, it's gonna be 25. They're more comfortable with that because it's, it makes it more, it makes it simpler. So are there no great writers, just great rewriters? I, I'm not sure if that's a quote of yours. I think I found no, that. No, it's, it's their, you know, writing is rewriting. Yeah, they've, that's probably more true of screenwriting than maybe any other narrative form. Just because there's so many layers to get a movie made, there's you as the writer. And so you get feedback from your writer friends, you know, the writer's group. If you're represented, you get feedback from your managers and sometimes your agents, depending upon you know, what your relationship is with your agents. Then if you're working with a producer, you get feedback from the producer. And if you've got it set up at a studio or a production company or financier, you get feedback from them. Then if the thing gets greenlit, now you've got actors and directors attached. Well, now you're gonna have feedback from the director. You're gonna have feedback from each of the individual actors. Sometimes they have their own writers and then you have to then synthesize what the, uh, what the other writers have done to their characters. And so, for example, I know Eric Heiserer quite well, and he wrote Arrival, which is absolutely one of the you know, all-time fantastic scripts. And I asked him, I said, how many drafts did you do? And he said 100. Now, most of those are like changing a line, you know, but he would, just, he would codify each one just so he knew, you know, or dropping a scene or adding two scenes or whatever. Um, so I, I think probably out of that, maybe 10 or 15 drafts, you know. But yeah, you, you know, I tell my students, university students, when they've gone through all this work of, of developing a story, and then they sit down to write you know, a draft of it, I say, okay, you just have to understand it's not gonna be perfect. You're gonna have to rewrite it. And they go, oh, really? You know, they're not used to that. Talk to them two, three years later, they completely understand, you know. But yeah, rewriting, writing is rewriting, yeah. Dialogue is not conversation? It's conversation with a purpose. It's, it's people conversing, but every line needs to move the story forward in some respect. Whether it's moving the plot forward through some sort of revelation that a character makes, or moves these characters forward in their own relationship because they have an argument and that conflict causes one or both of them or more of them to shift in terms of their thought processes and feelings. Or it provides some exposition, some information, some data, which is a key to help them get a clue to move the thing forward. But yeah, dialogue is conversation, but it's conversation with a purpose. You need to be really mindful of that. So that's tricky because it's gotta be entertaining too, you know? And in an ideal world, it's more often than not, it's subtextual. So that what's being communicated is really more about what's underneath the words than the words themselves. 
It's also, dialogue is also the words that aren't spoken. Sometimes the best dialogue is what's not said. So I get the message like, is dialogue conversation? And there's a, the subtext there is, don't make it just like how people talk in real life, like, because we just go, well, we just blabber on and on and on. We don't have that amount of time in a screenplay. You need to be precise and efficient. But yes, it is conversational. It should sound conversational, like how characters would talk in the real world. So I get it, but yeah, it's conversation with a purpose. That would be my take on that. Are there any films that are really a great study in subtext? Uh, I would say I would read anything by Tony Gilroy, like Michael Clayton, that script. Um, he does a, he's just, he's just an amazing writer. Um, and Michael Clayton is, is a really just, it's a script that anybody should just read because he not only has subtext going on, but the text is so entertaining and there's layers to it so that sometimes he's saying like what's absolutely on the character's mind. So the text is like right there and so the words, the meaning of the words are right up top, but then there's other layers underneath too. So he, he's, he's really brilliant and Michael Clayton is a script I absolutely recommend.